Hello and welcome to Fort for State, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist Yarn Sydney on Gadigal lands, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to the device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockwell. With little more than two weeks to go until we vote on the voice referendum, it's a good time to remind ourselves that the voice is the first step in a three-step process. Voice, treaty and truth-telling. Truth-telling is something we all want from the media, but just how ready is the Australian media to tell the truth about our past? And do we as a profession have the cultural awareness and understanding to do that job? Recently, a seminar was held at UTS called Truth-Telling and News Media. The event had a range of speakers talking on the issues and practices needed around truth-telling. The seminar was facilitated by Dr. Archie Thomas, who is a Chancellor Postdoctoral Research Fellow at UTS. Now I'm going to hear an excerpt from the seminar, and if you want to hear the full seminar, it's available now on the Fourth Estate podcast feed. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome. My name's Archie Thomas, and welcome to this Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledge seminar on truth-telling and the news media. I'll start by acknowledging that today I'm on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Yora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and also acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. So my name is Dr. Archie Thomas. I'm a Chancellor's Research Fellow here at UTS. My pronouns are he, him, or or they, them. So I'm a member of the Centre for Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges, or as we like to call it, CAKE, which is a part of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And I'm also a member of the School of International Studies and Education. So I'm facilitating the discussion today. And some of my research in collaboration with other scholars here at CAKE and UTS has focused on how media discourses frame aspirations of Indigenous people and other marginalised groups and how Indigenous journalists operate in kind of white-dominated media spaces. So I feel, you know, very lucky to be facilitating this uh, webinar with some quite amazing uh, expertise um, from around the world um, here today. So our focus today is whether the Australian news media is ready for truth-telling. And of course, I don't really need to tell you all, but we meet less than a month away from the referendum that will be hosted here in Australia on whether we will alter the constitution to allow for a permanent Indigenous advisory body known as the Voice to Parliament, which was, of course, first outlined in the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart. Famously, of course, that you know, statement calls for a sequence of reforms, voice, treaty, and truth um, as a path um, of reform and repair for uh, Indigenous and settler relations uh, in this country. Seems quite clear um, at this point that some, you know, familiar narratives are emerging in media coverage and the kind of larger public discourse around the voice. Um, we've seen, you know, kind of disinformation about the Uluru Statement itself, ideas about, you know, supposedly secret plans for reparations, for example, or, you know, kind of unchecked or unexplained power that the voice would, you know, supposedly usher in, as well as, you know, some very old and and familiar discussions around Indigenous land rights and and native title, and some broader debate about whether colonisation itself has been a, a negative experience for Indigenous people. Perhaps this debate shouldn't really surprise us. You know, in recent years, research has you know, confirmed just how white the Australian media is in terms of its makeup and in terms of its perception of its audience and its its standpoint. You know, plenty of research confirming how 
media reports there were deficit frame focused on on scandal and conflict and of course plenty of discussion about the kind of post-truth era that we're living in and online disinformation and other kind of strategies which you know have been quite difficult to to navigate for indigenous people and many others especially in the context of the voice referendum but of course news reporting remains quite important for shaping how indigenous political worlds are understood and could potentially play a quite powerful role in reflecting on Australia's colonial past and its ongoing impacts on the present. And there has been some indications that Australian media and kind of Australian media landscape is changing in this regard, whether that be the kind of growing profiles of a a cohort of Indigenous journalists or or the reporting of outlets, you know, like The Guardian, which is working to avoid the kind of uh, traps of these uh, familiar and, and damaging discourses. So what we hope to do in this panel here today is to broaden the lens out to include both discussion of the context that we're grappling with here at the moment and into the future of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the debate around the voice, but also subsequently around truth-telling processes and the general notion of it. And we're going to broaden that out also to focus on Maori context in Aotearoa and Sami context in Norway, where truth-telling projects, both you know, in the media, in the Aotearoa context, and in the state, in the Norwegian context, you know, give us potentially some insight into how we might navigate and understand the situation that we find ourselves in and kind of consider the, the role and responsibility of the media. So I'll introduce the, the panellists now, and I'll give a kind of longer introduction to them all as they speak. So as I mentioned, a pretty esteemed and accomplished group of, of people that have gathered here today. So first of all, we have Lorena Allen, who is the Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. Lorena is a Gamilaroi and Wulroy woman whose country lies uh, in the Darawa or Naran Lakes area in far west New South Wales, spans the border with southwest Queensland. Uh, she's been an uh, amazing journalist for around 30 years, worked across the ABC on a number of different uh, programs there, and now at The Guardian, where, as I mentioned, she's the editor and has been are leading the Guardian Australia's coverage of the voice and of uh, truth-telling. Carmen Parahi also joins us from Aotearoa. She is the Pautuakimatua on the executive team of the media group Stuff, and she led Stuff's historic apology to Maori communities in 2020 and the research project that went along with that, and now leads their strategy for fair representation of Maori and all underserved communities uh, informed by Treaty of Waitangi principles. We're going to start with Lorena Allen. So, Lorena. Thank you, Artie. I'm very uh, honoured to be on this panel with such accomplished women. I'm very much looking forward to hearing the, the Māori and the Sami experience of truth-telling. It's something that um, you know, we're all obviously very passionate about and doing in different ways. So I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. So I'm going to get through what I've got to say really fast. So firstly, I'll acknowledge that I'm here on the land of the Wangal clans of the Durant Nation close to the mighty Baramatical or Parramatta River. And as Archie said, I'm a Uwara woman. My family come from the far northwest of New South Wales, around the Narran Lakes area, and our clan estates extend across the Whitefella border into Queensland. I'm the Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. And it's been a busy time for all Indigenous journalists in this country. As Archie said, we're covering the Western Parliament referendum. And I had planned to carve out some time to sit and really think about these crucial questions facing the media, but of course, 
the voice to parliament is a daily breaking news story and so it has steamrolled a lot of the uh, spare time I might otherwise have had to prepare anything considered. So I feel like this is really a top line, some top line observations from me as a working journalist about the important role that the media has in truth-telling and how much harder we still need to work to combat misinformation, disinformation and outright lies in the social media age. I mean, the coverage of the Voice to Parliament referendum should provide very fertile ground for media academics to pour over in on this very point for years to come because we're seeing a daily avalanche of misinformation and lies and fear-mongering being circulated on social media. It's hard to fact-check one claim before another equally spurious one pops up and goes viral. It's like playing this endless game of whack-a-mole with the truth. And it's all playing out at a time when news fatigue is quite high and people are switching off traditional sources of news gathering because the news is grim everywhere we look. Consequently, the faith in the reliability of old school news is at a low ebb. And when you combine that with the rise of social media, things like COVID and other conspiracy theories, you know, replicating online, people are getting their information from a range of sources that aren't news, traditional news. So opinions on Facebook, TikTok influencers, people they follow on YouTube. It's not, none of us, as we all know, not subject to the same editorial and legal rigor as journalism is. But consequently, there's a growing number of people, news consumers who are immune, you know, to a lot of what they call the mainstream media or the media, like we're some amorphous group of people who all think the same, will report. So they are truth seeking, I guess, but they're not truth finding. And that presents a real challenge for those of us who operate in that landscape. So we all need to be really media literate to decipher the media, the info we're given these days. We all need to be reporters in the way that reporters ask questions, they check their sources, they ask to whose benefit or curi bono, you know, why am I being given this information, to whose benefit is it that I know this? Those are the things that people meet with good media literacy ask. So it is a challenging time to work in the media. And as an Indigenous journalist, it's very challenging, particularly now, because we are exposed to a level of racist trolling online and commentary on social media, some of it driven by news organisations. And it really does take its toll. It's a really tough time to be, to be working in this space. And I will talk about the voice to parliament later, but I really wanted to talk instead about the kind of opportunities there are for truth-telling that is transformational. So something that is meaningful for the tellers as, as those and to those of us who hear them and, and consume their stories. So the, the example I talk, like to talk about is the one that my colleagues, Sarah Collard, who's a Balladong woman from WA and I have reported recently. Um, about two weeks ago, we published a series of stories uh, called Buried Lives, which is the culmination of a year-long, pretty much invest- year-long investigation we uh, have been doing. Um, and I need to warn you, it's pretty traumatic content uh, that I'm about to discuss. Um, we reported that the, the, a ground-penetrating radar surveys have found multiple sites of possible 
clandestine burials in the grounds of one of the most notorious institutions of the Stolen Generations era, the Kinchula Boys Training, Aboriginal Boys Training Home on the North Coast of New South Wales. Um, at least nine suspicious anomalies that have been called have been identified by experts surveying the area. That a high priority that they say can't be explained by other information and show signal patterns that in other contexts have proven to be human burials. The report sources, you know, we're, try, we're trying to be cautious and say we don't know how old these, we won't know for sure until like we excavate. We don't know whether they're ancient burials of ancestors or whether they are forensic, which means they're less than 100 years old. But given that the experience of those men, who we call the uncles at Kinchula, it comes as no surprise to them that there could be bodies buried on the side. Um, Kinchla was run by the Aboriginal Protection Board, or later called the Welfare Board of the New South Wales Government from about 1924 to about 1970. About 400 to 600 Aboriginal boys between the ages of 5 and 15 were forcibly taken from their families and incarcerated there under the laws and policies of what we call the Stolen Generations. There was a punishment and deprivation. This place was a hellhole, the men describe it as. Sexual abuse. There were several inquiries over time that that highlighted how bad and treated the boys were and yet it continued to operate. They talk they talk to us at length about the punishments they received for things like wetting the bed, that be chained to a tree overnight, or told to stand in the swamp up to their necks. These are little boys, five, six, seven years old. Yeah. And food was withheld, those sorts of punishments, whippings and beating. They first expressed concern that there might be the boys might have been with foul play on the site. Way back in 1995, when we had a big national inquiry into the stolen generations called Bringing Them Home. But it wasn't until 2016 that the state government here agreed to work with the survivor organisations to do surveys of the sites. And it wasn't until the end of last year that they were actually completed. Now, just, just quickly, the stolen generations, uh, it's estimated that between one in three and one in 10 Aboriginal children were moved nationally during that time. So a large proportion of Aboriginal and a lot of people living today are stolen generations or their descendants, and they are among the most disadvantaged in our communities. They have the worst health outcomes. Uh, they are better off. They're worse off in terms of housing, employment, and family outcome. And so the inter intergenerational impact has been significant and widespread. You know, in WA, I think almost half the Aboriginal population are stolen generation descendants. So when we broke this story of the news of possible clandestine burials on the site, I mean, it was really shocking stuff. It's very distressing. Taking a toll on us personally to tell these stories. But every time we've had those feelings, we remember how hard it is for them, the uncles of Kinchula, to have lived it. And then remember how they are still telling these stories all these years later and still fighting for recognition. So in a way, I feel that it was an honour to be able to work with them to to tell these stories in a way that they were happy with. And I think that's one of the most important qualities of truth-telling is that the truth does not diminish over time. These stories haven't changed in all the years that they have told them. They keep speaking their truths and, you know, they are hoping that people are starting to listen. So... Their stories are traumatising for us to hear, and as news people who, who read the news, it's distressing to read, but it's really necessary that you read those stories. They want you to know what happened to them. That's why they're talking. 
they want you to face up to the past because they are living with it every day. It's not ancient history. It's it's embedded in them. It's, they are, it, it, it is embodied in them and their families who are still coming to grips with what happened to them. So I think the rest of us should at least have the courage to listen with respect to what they have to say. So the overwhelming response to those stories when we published was positive and heartfelt. And interestingly, fewer and fewer people said things like, oh, I had no idea, or why wasn't I told, which are unusual default settings when you give someone a very challenging bit of information about Australian history as it relates to Indigenous people. I'd like to think those statements are becoming extinct, hopefully, because people have been told over and over. And interestingly, over time, it's the journalists who've been doing the telling. Another project I worked on with Linda Ryan, a professor of history, emeritus professor of history at the University of Newcastle, was about mapping the massacre history of Australia. And it was, it was incredible to me, although it shouldn't be surprising, how much of the source material was colonial newspaper reports. The journalists were recording this stuff, obviously white journalists back then, but as, as source material, it's really, really important. And so there's a, there's a, Chronology, if you like, of, of journalists doing this work. The each step forward in the acceptance of our history, or a fuller picture of our history, there's denial at every turn. So while most people responded to the stories positively, I really won't tell you what some of the comments have been made about them. But they do serve to underscore the old saying that people say they want the truth until you give it to them. And if it's too confronting, and it can be, they step right back into that comfort zone of deflection and denial. And what about is it's a good measure. So there were some comments about, well, they weren't the only kids taken and they were taken for their own good and all this horrible stuff. They were accused of lying. We were accused of lying, exaggerating and covering up the truth. And we were at pains to be very careful and nuanced about what we, you know, we didn't, we didn't resort to hyperbole there was no there was no need to you know to gild this story it was horrific enough and those sorts of things we the denial those were the nicer comments we got so the flip side of truth telling especially in the media of accountability makes people uncomfortable but you cannot and should not sugarcoat a story like this one and the outcomes were consulted at every step of the way they were aware we were going to publish they were prepared for the media response to it we knew they knew what we were writing. They saw the pictures. They understood the context in which they would be represented. So at every stage, it was very important to us to be trauma-informed in our dealings with them and in providing the right context for those stories to be told. And this is one thing that Indigenous journalists do better than the mainstream. And that's, you know, giving context to our people's stories, writing explainers about the history of a stolen generation so that readers could see this is a systemic episode in our history. It's not an isolated event, you know, because minimization is much easier. It's another reaction against the truth when you, when you aren't confronted with the scale of it. So it was very important to us to use maps and diagrams to, to present the scale. We tried to keep the language plain. We, the uncles told their stories in their own words. We worked with them for months and months to get to the point where they were ready and they were prepared to trust us because I think they, I hope they realise we're not in this for the clicks. It matters very much to us as First Nations journalists that we get the story right and we tell it in the right way. We know it takes as long as it takes 
can't rush the elders. You have to be patient and listen. At each stage, we had to be prepared to shelve the investigation if they said they didn't want to proceed because that's just, that's the deal, right? This is how our people do things respectfully. The end result, I think, is a tribute to their resilience and their generosity. Uh, I hope that it's seen as considered and nuanced and contextualised with the broader Indigenous history of our nation. And so we did it so that it could be of use to everyone who wants to learn about the stolen generation. Thank you so much, Lorena, for sharing that and your experience in leading that work with your colleague, Sarah Collard. I'll hand over now to Carmen Prahi from Stuff, who will share with us her experience of leading some similar work in Aotearoa. Uh, Good to see you all and to be here with you today. And thank you, Archie, and your team for allowing us to be here. So my first greetings were just to you, Lorena. For your mahi and all your hard work. It is very difficult to have to tell the stories about people and tell them in a way where they're, they're real, they're honest, and they're in the voices of our people, which is different from the voices of non Indigenous people. Yeah? So, a mahi to you and to all of our Indigenous sisters who are doing all their mahi. Where they, wherever they are, and also to, and big greetings to everyone who's listening today. So, my tribes are Rua Fakata, Ngati Kine, and Ngati Kahumunu from the north and from the east of the North Island. And my role, been a journalist for 23 years, and my role at Stuff at the moment is, which is to help our organization. So, Portiaki is our guard post strategy. That is a kotiaki is a, it's a physical post that you uh, put into the ground and it guards the metaphysical and physical aspects of the land wherever, wherever you put your post. So kotiaki is our strategy. It's our anti-discrimination, fair representation strategy. So uh, if it's our anti-discrimination, fair representation strategy, that tells you that we've acknowledged our past and our history. So three years ago, 2020, uh, early 2020, we, a group of journalists got together and asked and spoke to our CEO who had just bought stuff from Channel 9. It had been Australian ownership for a long period of time. And we knew it was the best time for us to actually act because we knew if it had, was still an Australian hat, there was no way we were going to do what we were going to do, which was to investigate ourselves. So look at our newspapers, 160 years of representation, of Māori representation and all of our publications, 
for 160 years that also included our digital website that's over 20 years old. And so a team of uh, reporters from across the country uh, looked at all the different papers, letters to the editor, opinion writing, or editorials, actually, which was really important because we needed to actually analyze the voices of our editors as well to see, to check their discrimination, to understand what how they had represented Māori over the years. And what we found, we shouldn't surprise anyone on this call, but may surprise some of our listeners, is discrimination, marginalization of Māori. We created negative stereotypes towards Māori through the news. And we had been outright racist in our perspective at times. We definitely get marginalized the voices, taken away the stories and voices of Māori. And we actually have criminalized Māori at certain points in our history as well, which is not ideal. One of our reporters looked at how we've reported on child abuse as an example and discovered that our papers over time, including our editors, at different, this was in the 90s, so it's not that far back, 90s and early 2000s actually, uh, we had made Māori the face of child abuse in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which means that we had diminished the experiences of our non-Māori babies who were being abused and killed, but we overemphasised the abuse amongst the Māori families. There was no context to that, so there was no colonial context, there was no poverty context, social context that comes uh, with that, with that, was with that reporting, and we had editors of papers who outright said, Māori, you need to sort out child abuse. And so these were some of the things that we shouted. They weren't that long ago. These were just in the last couple of decades that um, we discovered that. And, you know, it just wasn't fair to our non-Māori babies as well. And we also didn't hold to account non-Māori perpetrators of abuse as much as we had with Māori abusers. So there was a real imbalance there, and we had caused harm through that as one example. And so, so we brought this all together. And we put it to our executive team. I wasn't an executive at that time. I was part of the journalism, part of the editorial team. And they agreed that we should apologize, that we needed to apologize for what we'd done, that we, uh, we created a company charter. And our charter is principles uh, related to the Treaty of Waitangi. And so we created Pultiaki as well, which is the strategy. And what Pultiaki does so Paul Tucky, actually, I'll talk about what we did. So Charter, and then we released the apology in 2020 to Māori. Mixed bag, uh, people calling us woke, what a, who cares, all of this, you know. So, but also really good support, really good feedback from Māori. Of course, skepticism, say, no, yeah, you can apologise, but what are you going to do about it after the apology? Quite rightly. And so we've created different roles and um, we've tried, what we're trying to do is create culture, a Pōtiaki culture. And that culture means that every single person at staff is required to use the Pōtiaki lens over the work they do. The Pōtiaki lens is simply uh, Māori, consider Māori perspectives and the perspectives of marginalised communities. We've identified those, mar- those marginalised communities. They are basically all non-white, all non-white communities or non-Indigenous communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
So that includes our disabled people, our, our rainbow community, our Pacifica community, got a massive, huge Pacifica community, our different Asian communities as well. Our Asian community, so being as like, for example, the Chinese community has been here as long as the British in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You wouldn't think so because their history has not told as much as British history in Aotearoa. So there's all these, and also our, uh, our Indian community, they have been here as long, but their stories have been marginalised and their voices marginalised over time. One thing I would say about the issues that you've asked us to talk about is the Australian news media ready for truth-telling, unselfconsciously white the Australian news media is, like unselfconsciously white the Australian news media is, we just need to get conscious about it because this whole, I don't even understand that word. I don't even know why anyone would use that word. The facts are that all of our Australia, all of our Western news media have been created through colonialism. People hate talking about colonialism, but the C word is the key here. Colonialism created the system of the media. The media, like all other systems, created through colonialism, such as justice, education, health. They were all set up through colonialism. The media system is no different. You've been listening to an excerpt from Truth Telling and News Media. It was a seminar held recently at UTS, and if you want to hear the full seminar, it's available right now on the Fourth Estate podcast feed. And thanks for listening to the program. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics, and a lot in between. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is ForfaStateAU, and we are also on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>